Please take your copy of God's Word this evening and turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. And I would like to draw your attention to verses 10 through 12. Matthew, chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As a young man in ministry, I discovered that my grandfather had quite an extensive Christian library, an an eminently godly man, it was little surprise that he desired to fill himself with soul-stirring theology, biblical study, and church history. One small volume that stood out to me as I began looking through his library after his death was a book that would not be unfamiliar to you called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was a paperback copy with a purple cover with a golden crown in the center. I remember it well. The pages were dog-eared and tattered from its obvious use. Published in 1563, John Fox chronicles the vivid history of English and Scottish accounts of Protestant suffering and martyrdom under the reign of the Roman Catholic Church. Every page, it seems, was filled with illustrations of torment, anguish, and burning. As I began to make my way through these stories and through this rich history, Fox himself began to foster within me a love, not only for that particular time period in the church's history, but for the persecuted church throughout all of church history as well as today. Fox chronicles the history of a man by the name of John Hooper. Born in 1495, his early life was spent in Cambridge and Oxford. Very early on in ministry, he travels to France and Switzerland where he befriended Protestant reformers who planted a zeal within him for reformation in England. After the death of Edward, Mary I, eventually known as Bloody Mary, as history will remember her, ascended the throne, and immediately began to usher England back to Rome. Hooper, along with many other Protestant preachers and pastors, were immediately arrested and imprisoned in the Tower of London. On numerous occasions, Hooper was brought forth and ushered before assembled councils and commanded to recant his 
Protestant heresy every time he refused. On February the 9th, 1555, Bishop Hooper was led to his place of execution, tied to a stake, and burned. Chronicling these events, John Fox tells us that as Hooper was escorted to the stake, he implored the people to join him in reciting the Lord's Prayer. Fox recorded that weeping and sobbing washed over the crowd of spectators. And when he reached his erected place of death, an iron hoop was placed around his chest to secure him to the wooden stake. As the kindling was placed around the base of the stake, he caught two bundles in his arms, he kissed them, and he put them under his arms. The cold morning and blustery English wind was so fierce that when the flames were lit, they barely touched his body. The bottom half of his body began to burn, but only slightly. While the fire never reached his upper body, only burning his hair. Fox writes this, In the time of which fire, even as the first flame He prayed, saying mildly and not very loud, but as one without pains, O Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon me and receive my soul. As the second fire was spent, he did wipe both his eyes with his hands, and beholding the people, he said with an indifferent loud voice, For God's love, good people, let me have more fire. A third fire was lit. And amidst the waning flames, he prayed with a loud voice, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. These were the final words that emerged from the flames. Little by little... Hooper burned, first one finger, then the next. One arm fell off into the fire, and then the next arm, until he finally yielded up his spirit. Fox writes, thus when he three quarters of an hour or more He burned in the fire. Even as a lamb, patiently he abode the extremity thereof, neither moving forwards, backwards, or to any sides, but having his nether parts burned and his bowels fallen out, he died as quickly as a child in his bed. And now... And now he reigneth as a blessed martyr in the joys of heaven, prepared for the faithful in Christ before the foundation of the world, for whose consistency all Christians are bound to praise God. Countless stories just like this can be recalled throughout church history And even today in certain places in the world where there is a harsh antagonism for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, this should come as no surprise to the church. 
This should come as no shocking event to those who would call themselves Christians. The Apostle Paul warned in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul is deeply persuaded that conflict is inevitable between the church, that is, those composed of living righteously, and those in the world who revel in their ungodliness and sin. This, my friends, is a tension between light and darkness. The Gospel of John, I read to you just moments ago, chapter 15, our Lord's words, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Every faithful believer who desires to live a godly life must expect persecution. Now, it's not that every believer will be tortured or imprisoned or asked to recant or burned at the stake, but every believer here within the sound of my voice and listening online will experience at one point or another severe opposition from the world. Now, what does this mean for the church? It means that the church is composed of individuals that the world despises. Now, there may be an outward facade of friendliness and a desire for cooperation, But beloved, in the recesses of the heart of the ungodly, there is a vehement hatred for the things of God and the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the conclusion of our Lord's Beatitudes, here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus does something quite strange, doesn't He? He pronounces divine blessing upon those who suffer persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so tonight in our time together, I would like to divide this text into three parts Three very simple parts to really wrap our hearts around what our Lord is saying. The first part is the reasons for persecution. The second part is the expressions of persecution. And the third part is the reward of the persecuted. First off, the reasons for persecution. And that brings up a question, does it not? Why will Jesus' followers face persecution? Well, the answer is very simple in the context of Matthew chapter 5. Because Jesus' followers exhibit the godly characteristics of of the previous Beatitudes. Perhaps this is what Paul has in mind when he wrote to young Timothy that those who desire to live godly lives, holy lives, righteous lives will face inevitable 
persecution. Now, Jesus here in our text defines persecution and suffering arising from two sources. First, notice verse 10 of Matthew chapter 5. True disciples of Christ are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For righteousness' sake. So Jesus' statements that we know as the Beatitudes can be divided into two groups of four, with each group ending with a reference to righteousness. The first group of the Beatitudes concludes in Matthew 5, verse 6. Would you look there? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The second group ends in our text that I've read to you in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. So the three Beatitudes that conclude with a hunger for righteousness are descriptions of emptiness. Verse 3, poor in spirit. Verse 4, those who mourn. Verse 5, meekness. Do you see there's a kind of emptiness? And if you hunger for something, it's something you don't quite possess. And so those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, Hunger for righteousness. And then the second group of Beatitudes demonstrates to us that this emptiness and need is being fulfilled in the form of mercy, verse 7, purity, verse 8, and peacemaking, verse 8. And those three Beatitudes, mercy, purity, and peacemaking, are the righteous living that Jesus is referring to here in verse 10. So the result of this type of righteous living is inevitably persecution. Jesus is making very clear that the righteousness exhibiting itself in a believer's life through the characteristics of mercy, purity, and peacemaking provokes violence within those who do not know Him. Perhaps you've experienced that. The harder you try to bring about peace in conflict, the more upset people get with you. The more pure you are in your language and your actions and your desires and what you desire to take in yourself and into your family, the more you're made fun of and mocked and ridiculed. You see, the ungodly witness the church's righteousness and see such holiness as a condemnation on their own unrighteous behavior. And in response, they lash out in ridicule, they malign the church through severe forms of persecution and suffering. For those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. A godly life that is defined by mercy, purity, and peacemaking. 
A second reason true disciples of Christ are persecuted we find in verse 11. On my account. Do you see those words? Jesus, on my account, or for my sake. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus forewarns His followers of the type of treatment they could expect. He says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. He's highlighting a particular name, a Christological title that when identified with causes persecution and ridicule. According to Luke chapter 6 verse 2, the title Son of Man may have instigated particular offenses and hostilities within unbelievers. Why? Well, this specific title identifies the Lord Jesus Christ as a King of divine heavenly origin who will reign over a universal and eternal kingdom and the only one who is supremely worthy of worship by all the peoples of the earth. According to Matthew 13, verse 41, it will be the Son of Man who will send His angels to gather out His kingdom and all causes of sin and lawbreakers. It is the Son of Man in Matthew 16 who is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father when He will repay each person according to what He has done. It will be the Son of Man in Matthew 16 verse 28 coming in His eternal kingdom. In Matthew 19, verse 28, we see it is the Son of Man who will sit on His glorious throne. Do you see? This title is considered blasphemous and eventually proves to be the final key to the condemnation of Jesus' death on the cross. In Matthew 26, before the high priest Caiaphas and the religious council, the high priest asks Jesus, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Listen very carefully to what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, It is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you remember what Caiaphas did at that point? They began to rip their clothes. They began to pull out their hair. They went absolutely crazy. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? You see, the world is perfectly agreeable when the church identifies Jesus as a moral teacher, as a motivational figure, as a great leader, as someone that we should look to spiritually and ethically for perhaps how we are to live. But when the church attributes divine authority and universal kingship and cosmic rule to Jesus, when the church proclaims that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father, people in the world lose their minds. 
And so in Matthew 5.11, Jesus is saying, when you identify with me, when you attribute kingship, divine rule, and sovereign control to me, you will face relentless opposition, anger, and persecution from unbelievers who seek to oppose such rule over their lives. Identification with Jesus is the vital juncture of the confession of our faith, giving our righteousness its distinct character. You see, it's not enough. It's not enough to be merciful and pure and making peace. That's not enough. We are merciful and pure, and we make peace, my friends, because over us is our sovereign Lord working righteousness within us, and we know that we are accountable to Him in righteousness. You see, this is the type of righteousness that beautifies the church. By giving her an unparalleled message that's unique from all the institutions and organizations of the world. And what is that message we proclaim? Jesus is our King. And we obey Him. And so you're persecuted for righteousness sake. You're persecuted because you intimately identify with the sovereign king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And both of those areas incite persecution. And Jesus gives us three expressions of that persecution in verse 11. Three expressions that his followers will experience in their pilgrimage on earth. First, he says in verse 11, they will revile you. Reviling is the picture of someone mocking and verbally shaming you, pronouncing over you humiliating and discrediting words. The picture here is of those who roam about in the community mocking the church and those who make up her body. Secondly, Jesus says, you will be persecuted. Verse 11. This means literally to run after, to pursue, and to run out. Jesus was warning His disciples, they may be sought from town to town, by those driven by evil intentions, violent abuse, and even possibly being turned over to the authorities. In Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus warns of the hate that His followers will endure because of their identification with Him, He says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. You see, those who are incensed by the gospel message may try to drive the pastor out of town. Those who are enraged by the evangelistic efforts of the church may seek to bring that church before the authorities for violating their privacy or for even hate speech in preaching against sin. All manner of things may be invented to pursue you 
and run after you and run you out of town. That's what Jesus is saying here. But my friends, the church regardless must be a beacon of gospel light within a community seeking its good by proclaiming the saving message of Jesus Christ. Some some will see this as a beautiful representation of the transforming power of Christ, while others will hate, hate every single effort the church is involved in. And they will seek to close you down. Well, the third area for which Jesus says we can expect persecution in verse 11 states that they will say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. That is, the followers of Christ will have false allegations raged and raised against them based on imaginary lies. All one has to do is look at the life of Christ and see the lies that people came up against Him. Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees said of Jesus, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They were accusing Jesus of being the pinnacle of evil, falsely accusing Him of casting out demons in the name of hell. In Acts chapter 24, the high priest Ananias brought formal charges against the Apostle Paul, accusing him of being, quote, a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect called the Nazarenes. Paul, you go into town, start preaching, and riots break out. You're a plague on our town. You see, my friends, there is no depth to the deceitful lies and false accusations and mockery invented to persecute those within the church. Because when a church is devoted to righteousness and godliness and the gospel of Christ, they will be persecuted and reviled because that righteousness and that godliness and that gospel is an indictment against their sinful lifestyle. Jesus said in John Chapter 3, verse 20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Now it's often the case that the devil, our mutual enemy, thinks he will be able to destroy the church by persecution. However, throughout the church's history, we learn that persecution is instead a catalyst for church growth and increases instead of diminishing. You have to look no further than the book of Acts to see this happening again and again and again. Luke records in Acts chapter 4 verse 4 that the religious leader seized the apostles and imprisoned them. And he adds, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and a number of the men came to about 5,000. You see, you can lock up the pastors. You can put Christians in prison all day long. You can line us up. You can fill the prisons with Christians and the church marches on. 
after Stephen was stoned at the height of Saul's persecution of the church, it says in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 that the church scattered throughout the regions. But several new congregations were established as far away as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch by the scattered believers. Run us out of town, we'll plant a church in the next town. Run us out of that town, we'll plant another church in the next town. The Apostle Paul even observed the same gospel advance from his own persecutions. He chronicles for us in Philippians chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Put our hands in shackles between police officers and prison guards and we'll share the gospel with them and they may be saved. Put us behind the prison doors and like John Bunyan, we'll preach through the bars and people will be saved. The persecuted church, the devil deceives himself into thinking that he can stop her mission in the world. But the glorious reality is this church, persecution serves to display the righteousness, the courage, the boldness, the power of the gospel of Christ and achieves the complete opposite of that which our enemy desires. Regardless of pandemic, regardless of persecution, regardless of political upheaval, regardless of economic crisis, Christ builds His church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Congregations grow. Unbelievers are saved. Believers are sanctified. The gospel is boldly proclaimed. Fear departs. And the body of Christ is beautified. And so here Jesus is in this grand Sermon on the Mount, preaching these Beatitudes, looking out and pronouncing blessing upon those who identify with Him. And He's saying, when you are persecuted... When you are reviled, when you are mocked, when you are run out of town, when you are beaten, arrested, murdered, and burned, know this, you belong to me. Well, if we were only given Matthew 5.11, we might despair We might just close our Bibles and go home. But Jesus gives us more, doesn't He? In verse 12, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What a seemingly odd follow-up to what could have been a very discouraging pronouncement. Jesus is not being insensitive here, but He's looking out over the people, many of whom in the sound of His voice will face martyrdom in the days ahead. And He's saying this, Regardless of what you suffer on my account, I can assure you that without any shadow of a doubt, your reward in heaven will far more than compensate for any persecution you have endured here in my name. What a beautiful, paradoxical mystery within these words. Rejoice 
and be exceedingly glad. Rejoice while suffering. Be glad amid ridicule. How can this be? Well, this mystery is unveiled in the depth of our unyielding assurance that being with Jesus Christ in glory will far more than reward us for any suffering that we face in this life. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, church, our rejoicing, our gladness proceeds from faith in the unseen realm of eternity, which is more sure than the very seats that you're sitting in. The same faith that accepts Jesus Christ as Lord, the same faith that transforms us from one degree of glory to another. The same faith that stares our persecutors in the face and prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These persecutions are preparing for us and are bringing about an eternal weight of glory. Be exceedingly glad. This means to enjoy a state of utter happiness and well-being. Rejoice! That's similar, but there's a more intense expression here in that that rejoicing comes from the very inward parts welling up inside of you and spilling out in extreme joy. And both of these words in the Greek are in the present tense. Jesus is commanding His followers... To be consistently and continually joyful and glad in our suffering and in our persecution. This type of joy doesn't arrive later after you get home and the words that were hurled against you cease to sting or the name calling stops to hurt or the stripes down your back stop stinging. This is the type of joy that rejoices as the words are being said and as the lies are being told. This was the immediate type of joy that the apostles expressed in Acts chapter 5 in the face of persecution when they had been called in, when they had called in the apostles they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name With the bruises starting to form, with the blood still dripping from the whiplashes and their garments torn from their bodies, they rejoiced. This command of Jesus leaves no room whatsoever for the church to wallow in self-pity in the face of persecution. Far too many of us, 
my friends. Far too many of us in the day and time and culture in which we live are more known for our whining and complaining rather than for our rejoicing and our gladness. There's no room for self-pity in the kingdom of Christ. Self-pity spoils the garments of Christ's bride and mars her beauty. For the only proper responses in this suffering and persecution is joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, when we forget to rejoice, and oh, how often we forget, our Lord says, consider the prophets in verse 12. The prophets are described in Hebrews 11, aren't they? Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, and killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. We're prone to forget aren't we? We're prone to forget. So you go back and you read their testimonies. Immerse yourselves in their lives and you'll soon realize that you stand in the line with godly men and women of all generations who named the name of Christ and were hated by the world. For we're part of the universal church, that invisible church, the church of all the ages, proceeding to glory to hear our Lord say, Well done. Well done. As our world continues to grow in its anger and intolerance toward Christian believers, let me ask you, are you ready? Both mind and heart. They are coming for the church. Are you ready to stand and proclaim the sovereign name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you ready to faithfully serve the church in the midst of mocking and persecution? Are you ready to proclaim the exclusivity of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? calling people to repent of their sin and turn by faith and trust Him as Savior and Lord? Are you ready to give and be given? Remember the prophets who suffered the same. But ultimately, ultimately this evening, church, remember the Lord Jesus Himself who bore His cross with gladness and rejoicing. Three weeks before John Hooper was led to the stake of his execution, he wrote the following to his friends from prison. You must now turn all your thoughts from the peril you see and mark the joy that follows that peril. Either victory in this world of your enemies or else a surrender of this life to inherit the everlasting kingdom. 
He wrote, Beware of beholding too much the joy or misery of this world. For the consideration and too earnest love or fear of either of them draws us from God. There is nothing under God but may be kept so that God, being above all things we have, be not lost. What joy and comfort to our souls this evening that our great God and the Lord Jesus Christ and His blessed Holy Spirit that now indwells us, we shall never be lost from. Let's pray together. Our Father, what a tremendous time in Your Word this evening. Father, we know and recognize from Your Word the all-too-harsh reality that persecution and reviling is inevitable for those who identify themselves with Thy Son and our precious Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also recognize that one second in Your presence face-to-face will far more than compensate for any struggle and persecution and suffering that we can face here. Father, we pray that You would strengthen Your church universal. We pray that You would emblazon us with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You would give us boldness and courage in the face of this impending persecution that is even happening now in certain nations and countries of this world against those who call the name of Christ. For they are our brothers and sisters and we identify with them and we join hands with them and we ask you to plead in your great intercession on their behalf. Encourage us this evening from your word. We do pray and ask these things in the name of Christ and for His sake. Amen.